Navigating the Cloudscape with Chris Presley and special guests. Welcome to the 12th and November episode of the Cloudscape podcast. This is a podcast where we distill the latest announcements from the leading public cloud vendors and help you understand what we think matters the most. Our format is a casual interactive panel discussion with industry experts, and I'm going to introduce those experts right now. First off, I'm joined with Kartik Sikar. Hey, Kartik, how are you doing? Yeah, hi, Chris. I'm doing great. Great. Welcome back. Kartik's going to be discussing Google's GCP and also joining us, uh, Cloudscape regular Warner Chavez, who will be discussing Microsoft's Azure. How's it going, Warner? Good. How are you, Chris? Happy to be back here to navigate the Cloudscape. Yep, and glad to have you both. Not joining us this week is Greg Baker, who normally discusses AWS. We uh, chose to leave it out of the show this this time around because we are recording our reinvent special as we cover all of the. We also cover the leading trade shows. So coming out shortly after this one will be the AWS reinvent. Cloudscape special. And before we start, a little bit of housekeeping on the podcast. After we publish the AWS reInvent special, all of the Cloudscape podcasts will be published under the Datascape brand. The Datascape podcast is my other podcast project, and we felt that it made sense to consolidate them into one larger podcast. So please update your podcast apps to point to the Datascape podcast. If you haven't checked it out, that's a little bit different format where we go into data-based topics and quite a bit more detail, usually just one person, one guest, sometimes uh, a panel. So we'll still do cloud updates. They'll still be published monthly, but it'll all happen on the Datascape. We'll likely move over some of the latest Cloudscape episodes as well. The Datascape, if you are also a Datascape regular listener, you'll notice that there hasn't been a lot published in the last little while. The reason is basically I've taken on a number of additional responsibilities at Pythian and haven't been able to keep both podcasts going. That said, we're going to also retool both podcasts a little bit over the next four to six weeks during the holidays and come back with everything and hopefully several new Datascape episodes as well in the traditional format starting by the end of January or early February at the latest. And I'm very excited to bring the two podcasts together and very excited. We have mountains of content that we want to get through. And as always, we love your feedback. So if there's a topic you'd like us to discuss, you can email me at the Datascape podcast at gmail.com or Cloudscape podcast at gmail.com or, of course, presleyapithian.com. All right, back to the show. Let's get cracking with Azure. So, Warner, it looks like there's a public preview of a new feature called Confidential Computing. Why don't you talk about that? Yeah, so Confidential Computing is a, what Microsoft has called the use of secure enclaves and allowing capabilities for people to use this this functionality. So if you're not familiar with this and have never heard of this term, so a secure enclave is basically a protected region of memory that is closed off from access from outside any other application other than the application that is allowed to access that part of, uh, of memory and actually load code into it as well. So it is basically for the most secure computing that you can do. We're talking about, you know, let's say I'm running on my SQL server 
and I'm just running some computations. Even if when I am using something like always encrypted, for example, right? When I am working with the data and SQL Server is processing it after it has done the decryption, at that point, theoretically, somebody could dump my memory and look at it, right? So confidential computing, and, and like I said, that's like the name that Microsoft is using, using this capability called secure enclaves does not even allow something like that. It, like you could have access to the OS, you could have access to the BIOS, and you would still not be able to have access to the actual clear text of this memory. If you were to dump the memory, it would still come back encrypted, even as it is being processed, right? And the way this is done is because it is implemented in conjunction with hardware advancements, right? So Intel calls this uh, SGX, or Secured Guard Extensions. Mm -hmm. So up to the processor is aware of this, and the processor does not, for example, allow execution of code inside the enclave other than by the application that has signed that code, right? It doesn't allow any code outside of the enclave to have access to the data inside of the enclave either. So you don't like, for example, can pull out, let's say something extreme again, like I said, uh, some super important medical records or something like that. You could have them encrypted. You put the data inside the enclave and then it only gets decrypted inside the enclave Decrypted inside the enclave, by the way, still looks like it's encrypted from outside the enclave, right? And then you work on it, and then when you, you return the results, let's say you're doing some machine learning or something like that, you can return the results of whatever your model predicted outside of the enclave, but the medical records themselves were never revealed to, to anything outside of the enclave, right, in terms of what they look like, right? So. Right. Again, very, very interesting because it enables, like I said, something like, you know, limits of or pushes the boundaries of security to, to a place where they, they just haven't been before, right? It also allows something very interesting. For example, Microsoft is going to use some of this stuff with SQL Server because let's say right now you want to use something like always encrypted in SQL Server. So this is the feature where the client is the only one that has the decryption keys for a particular column, because that's the only way to be able to protect a field from the DBA not having access to the data, right? Now the problem, there's several issues with that. The first one is the clients usually don't have the compute capacity to do a lot of encrypt and decrypt compared to the actual database servers. And the second one is that because the fields only allow the execution engine to do computations on the encrypted values, for example, when you're optimizing a query, the only type of index search that you can do is to see if it's equal or not, if you want to use symmetric encryption, right? So it really limits the functionality of what you can do with those encrypted columns. But implementing with secure enclave means that once it's inside the secure enclave, if they load the optimizer or a subsector of the optimizer inside the secure enclave as well, they can enable like rich computing over columns that are encrypted and still not be able to have access for the DBA to look at the encrypted data, right? That's, so it's, it's, it opens new scenarios certainly. Um, for things like this. That, that's fascinating. Now, do you think that, that that feature was inspired by the processor bug that they uncovered a little while ago? Uh, yeah, by, uh, what's it called, Meltdown, and uh, what was the other one? The other, uh, it was two. It was Meltdown and something else, I forget. Possibly, actually, that's a really good point. Maybe they were already working on it, maybe not, but it is it is actually that to that point because the enclave 
is doesn't even if you have BIOS access, you still can't get into the enclave. Like you can't actually decrypt it, right? Because it's all hardware protected. By the way, ARM also has a similar technology. So this is coming into the mobile space and the IoT space as well. It's called ARM Trust Zone, which is like I said, the, the equivalent to this Intel SGX. And I believe Microsoft is is adding the support for it for the ARM flavor as well as part of their IoT story. So that you know how Azure has some what they call the IoT edge. So you can run some smaller parts of Azure in the, the client edge and even into smaller IoT devices. So they're they're planning to add this into their SDK so that they'll have support for ARM Trust Zone as well on the IoT devices that have this capability. So you could do, again, confidential computing on IoT, which is very interesting too, because you have to think like, well, what kind of confidential computing could happen on IoT? But then you think of stuff like biometrics, for example, right? Like you could have a machine that is like, everybody's putting their fingers down and you're sending information about how many people are going through a security checkpoint up to the cloud, but the actual biometric computation can happen inside a secure element at the machine itself, mm-hmm. right? And that never gets exposed kind of thing. So mm-hmm. That is fascinating. I, that, that's a very interesting feature. Thank you, Warner. And Kartik, it looks like there are a couple of interesting big query updates. Why don't you talk to us about them? Oh, uh, yeah, sure. BigQuery is one of my favorite tools in GCP. And I'm always very excited when there are new feature releases on BigQuery. Two important uh, releases. First is GCP has... Uh, new regions that it had it had promised. So now London region has been released as far as uh, BigQuery is concerned, and so has Singapore and Sydney. So basically, we are looking at the progression of BigQuery being rolled out across multiple regions, which is pretty much in plan as per what Google been publishing and pushing it in order to re- uh, roll out BigQuery across the globe in multiple places. So that is really helpful for a lot of international customers who were always struggling with data uh, sovereignty issues and they didn't want data to leave their countries. So it really helps in multiple regulations and obviously have the data closer to home. The second big release from BigQuery's perspective is the ability to have uh, column-based partitions on specific date fields. So this is, I feel, a very big release in terms of uh, managing, being able to manage data much more effectively in terms of uh, BigQuery uh, perspective, having data well partitioned, One of the other things that they have made as part of this release is enabling DML statements as far as these partitions are concerned. It's not a regular standard SQL, but it's a little bit more, a little bit customized in terms of how BigQuery handles partitioning, but it is not that far off. And one thing to consider in this particular case is we all know BigQuery is a multi-tenant solution and it has a strict limit on quotas and limits in terms of the number of partitions and uh, that you can actually process. At the, for a given table. So even though these are very good releases, there are still some limitations in terms of the hard stop in terms of the total number of partitions you can have on a particular table. Obviously, uh, this is because of their underlying architecture in terms of how BigQuery is actually created and what the underlying reference architecture for BigQuery is. But one of the talk is that they are going to increase and try to have these uh, limits a little bit more flexible, obviously driven by consumption and usage. So, so what is the, the limit now? Uh, 2,500. 2,500. Okay. It's not terribly small. <laughs> it's not terribly small, but at the same time, there are some people, if you go, who have started hitting this limit, 
But uh, one of the things that Google has said that they will revise and talk about these limits uh, and quotas depending on how what they're seeing uh, mm -hmm. usage in the industry to be. And at the same time, they might come back with a specific quota increase depending on certain pay ranges. So like you can get a specific additional quota allotment if you pay a little extra more or something I like find, that. I find that people on-prem usually use way higher partitioning granularities than they usually need on MPP systems anyway, right? Like on-prem, a lot of people will do like, oh, I have to do like daily partitions and things like this. But once you move to, to something like BigQuery, like because of its distributed nature, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to do super fine-grained partitions, right? It doesn't, but it all depends on the total amount of data volume that you need to process, right? I mean, if you want to have, if you have a huge data set and you have uh, multiple joins and uh, complex queries that you're running against it, partitions may be helpful. It is just something mm -hmm. that brings it up to par and gives similar capabilities if you do run into those problems in terms of volumes. Yeah, because I mean, 2,500, even if you do daily partitions, that's 365 partitions, that's still like several years worth of daily partitions. That is right? correct, yeah. yeah. There, are, there are some cases in which I've, I've seen on the blogs about people wanting to do hourly partitions as well, <laughs> essentially being targeted towards those. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, that is usually, I, I can see that like, that's usually like the edge cases, right? There are exactly, and that is the reason why Google is not really pushing for increasing the total quota limits at this point of time. They want to see how people are using it in the industry and then maybe work on those limits a little later. Yeah, it also depends, you know, on why someone is partitioning them. Is in certain data warehouses, when I worked in for a financial company, we were we would partition out credit card transactions into uh, kind of Y minus one, Y minus two, Y minus three in a rolling. And it was for performance, but also blocking locking. But you don't have those issues with BigQuery. So that's gone. And thanks to developments in SQL Server and other pl platforms, you can change the row level isolation and, and mitigate that too. So uh, my point is just, you know, you I think it causes, um, you need to re-examine why you're partitioning and make sure it's still a valid reason because it might not be anymore. So uh, thank you, Kartik. That, that was great. And we'll come back to you, Warner, to talk about Azure Digital, Digital Twins now in preview. Sounds pretty interesting. Why don't you tell us more? So this is a, a service that is part of Microsoft's IoT story with the cloud. And that's where the Digital Twins name comes in. And actually, the term Digital Twins is not just you know owned by this service. It's a general a general term that is being used a lot in the IoT space nowadays. And it just basically means, you know, building a model uh, computationally that maps to a, a physical space, right? That the digital twin of whatever you're trying to, to build in real life, right? So this could be, it could be inside a vehicle, for example. I mean, look at how many sensors our cars have nowadays, right? It could be inside a building. It could be you know, even in a city, it could be across buildings even, right? So the digital twin service, what it does is that it gives clients an already pre-built model that Microsoft has fine-tuned based on working with, you know, countless clients and building solutions like this. So they don't have to sit down and do the modeling themselves. They can just consume the model. And at the same time, this model has already been operationalized by Microsoft, right? So for you, it's basically just an API where you can load 
your entities so you can customize the model how you want it and then you start loading data into it and it already you know microsoft manages the compute microsoft is managing the high availability and microsoft is also obviously adding integrations to the service so you know you can fire off alerts from your digital twin over to an azure event hub or you can fire over to a logic app and then do something depending on what's going on in real time and things like this, right? So uh, for example, let's say I have a building and it has 10 rooms and each room has a, an IoT uh, temperature sensor. So then you would just create a model where you have, you know, I have a building, I have these rooms, I have the IoT sensor. And then whenever, let's say one of the temperatures fluctuates, you could just, you know, do an event hub routing right back to the sensor to adjust down or adjust up, or you could shoot an email over to an operator or things like this, right? It's really a service to get people going quickly with an IoT solution and to really make that step of mapping it to a real life space really easy with all the integrations built in, right? Sounds interesting. I mean, and, and that seems to be a lot of the Microsoft strategy is build build out APIs and build out technologies and try to get customers, uh, you know, using them ASAP. And, and you know, yeah. Google does it as well. Now, now so. that you make that point, actually, this is it's kind of we're we're coming up with a kind of a trend where they'll they're building services that I would call is like high level services, right? It's it's bordering on the level of SaaS at this point, right? You could call it a pass service, but I mean, it has already so much built-in intelligence built-in over specifically the IoT space that it's it's almost SaaS at this point, right? So I think we're going to start seeing a lot of that too, where they take these challenges that they see a lot of people have with specific type of apps and then just move it up one level and provide that as a service because i think we did i think we covered a similar thing a few episodes ago the front door service where they basically bundled all these things that people always do for their web apps and now that is a service on its own right mm -hmm. yeah and, and I, I love it when they do that although you know I, there are lots of companies out there who don't love it you know because yeah. microsoft takes you out of business by you know they, they bundle a couple of things together that everyone does and suddenly your software that you've been selling is no longer relevant and it's being given away by, you know, for free. And that's happened many times in history. That's pretty, pretty, we could have an interesting podcast actually just dedicated to that. I'm sure. That's not just limited to Microsoft alone. It's, it's, it's Google and AWS as well. Absolutely. All, all of the providers are doing the same thing. Absolutely. 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 Let's uh, stick with uh, you, Warner, for one more. I love the cognitive different services available from all of the cloud vendors. Let's talk about the new emotional analysis availability. So this is this is really, really, really a simple new thing they added. I mean, it seems simple to us, but probably takes quite a bit of coding. But basically, they have this video indexer. We've probably talked about the video indexer before, right? You can upload uh, video files and Azure will, will allow you to tag people and be able to, you know, you can just say, like, give me all the timestamps where somebody shows up in a video. They allow you to split topics and things like this, and you can tag the videos. They allow you to jump into when somebody's talking, and it does auto-transcript as well and things like this. So basically what they, they added now is emotion analysis. So whenever they, the, the engine thinks somebody is expressing happiness in the video or anger or sadness i forget 
what the, there's only there's not that many emotions there's like five because it's not like i don't think it's, it's it's super smart to like detect like a really subtle emotion like disappointment or something like that right so i think it's like four or five emotions right now it's like happiness sadness anger and i forget the other one but it doesn't matter so anyway the video indexer will actually tell you when in, in a part of the video you're getting like that, you're getting like happiness or you're getting anger or, or any of these emotions. It's interesting not only in the capability, but what's more interesting is the type of things that you can build with that, right? I can see it being really useful for sentiment analysis or for like a marketing company that you know does like a lot of, let's say they go out and survey a bunch of people and then they're trying to find good clips of something right? Instead of having to have a human go in and watch everything and put all the tags individually, they can just run it through the indexer. And it's like, okay, we need to do a new commercial about this new burger. And we like shot all these random people on the street when we offered them the free burger. So let's obviously, let's just go straight to the ones that are like obviously happy because we're not going to cut the sad ones for the commercial or even less the angry ones right <laughs> so so it, I, I i find that interesting in terms of you know opening more use cases for oh absolutely i mean it's of course there is a creepy factor to all of this but i don't whatever uh, but when you think about the uh, way you could apply this to say retail and if you took video, of course, there are cameras in all retail stores making, you know, for theft and what have you. But you could apply it to performance management for uh, retail staff. And you could you could easily use this uh, to determine, like, which of your staff makes customers the happiest and who annoyed the most customers. Right. And you could have this yeah. all bundled up in a neat little report. And you could say, OK, well, Ter Terry is uh, makes everyone happy. Stacy annoys everyone. And this happens. And, you know, or these are the customers that you could have. Have, you could be following up with them. All of the annoyed customers who left got uh, texted a 10% off coupon or, or something showed up in their email. Like this is, of course, mm, creepy, but yeah, yeah. a lot of fun. We, we, keep, we keep running into this. A lot of times that we talk in the podcast, when we talk about these AI advancements and services and whatnot, we always like, we're always kind of treading the big brother territory with some of it, right? But that's, that's true. It's like, it opens up a lot of new capabilities and many things, right? Well, I, I, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And just even there are a lot of cameras pointed on the streets these days, too. And so there's a lot you could do with that. That's very interesting. Let's stick with this for just one more cognitive services in containers. Why the heck would you want to do that? So cognitive services, we've covered it in the datascape. So if you don't know what it is, there's a full-blown episode about it in the datascape. I'll just give you the five-second description. It's basically a, a set of cognitive abilities built in as cloud APIs. And they do things like text analysis, speech analysis, knowledge grouping of questions and things like this, right? So the, the difference here or the, the release this month was that these services have always been offered as cloud APIs, but they have a couple of drawbacks because of that, and is that a lot of the data that you would use with cognitive services can be really rich data. For example, audio files, video, the speech, right? That would be the type of recorded audio as well. Images, right? If you're using the, uh, the object recognition and things like this. So now you can deploy it as a container on-prem. And the, the pitch here is that if you have large amounts of data that you want to get processed through the cognitive services and you just like 
what Microsoft is doing, you can just deploy it as a container. So you pick the specific cognitive service that you want and you deploy the container for it. And then your data stays on-prem and doesn't have to move up to the cloud and you still get the same functionality as the cloud service, right? So that could be due to just basically the cost of moving the data up. You're just not willing to pay that cost, or it could be due to classic regulatory compliance, right? Where there's some data that you're not allowed to move to the cloud, but you like what Microsoft is doing, so you deploy their their cognitive services as a container on-premises. Okay, Fa fascinating. And Kartik, coming back to you to talk more about data, talk to me about the latest uh, Cloud Spanner updates. Yes, the latest Cloud Spanner update is really exciting. You know, when you have a lot of tools as a database developer and suddenly some people take the tools away from you, it's never very happy. And this is what exactly what happened with Cloud Spanner because they did not really have DML statements. So in simple things like insert, update, delete, we're not really part of uh, Cloud Spanner because just the way it is developed, it's not a traditional database solution. But now with a lot of pushback coming in from the industry that, hey, you really need these statements. We cannot do everything using REST API services because we want to use it as uh, we're doing a lot of migrations. It's not always possible to convert things into the model in which Spanner operates. So finally, Google did go ahead and allow for DML services, which is now uh, general availability on Cloud Spanner. To that effect, it's not only supported on Cloud Spanner, they're also, I think they've already released the JDBC drivers, which allow for these DML statements to be executed on uh, Cloud Spanner databases as well. So this is actually a pretty big release. This we, we From us working with numerous customers, this was one of the primary complaints that we were hearing back from customers over and over again. We had to use third-party tools and other uh, ways in which to do DML uh, pretty easily. But now with this being in already rolled into Spanner, it's going to be much more easier. There'll be, I'm definitely assuming that there's going to be much higher adoption uh, for Cloud Spanner just because enablement of these features really helps. Absolutely. Seems like a no-brainer. Good stuff. Werner, let's, let's continue the theme of data and talk about static, static data masking. So static data masking is a, the next evolution of, of a feature in SQL and Azure SQL called dynamic data masking. And the data masking part is exactly what you're thinking about. So if I have a, a field that's a bunch of social security numbers, for example, I can define a mask on SQL Server and say, hey, only show the last four digits and the rest show it as like a bunch of little stars kind of thing, right? So this was released already, but the difference here is between the dynamic part and the static like name now. So previously, this was all dynamic. So on storage, it was still showing the actual social security numbers. And if somebody with high level of access or somebody that, let's say, just queried the the data in a different way for example if somebody had like an export of the data it would still come out with the full social security number right that's the why it was called dynamic because it was only masking it on execution while it was sending the data out so now it's static so basically what that means is that you can actually run a specific a ddl now define the mask on the field and it will literally go in and physically change 
all the numbers. Now, obviously, you're not going to do this in production if you still need to have the real number, right? But this opens a lot of scenarios where, for example, for terms of uh, data warehousing, you maybe not don't don't need to keep the full number anymore. It opens scenarios for development and testing and demo, make a lot of easier, right? You can just change the actual data and then give that copy for people to use for training or tests or demos and things like this, right? So it opens a couple of scenarios that were that were just not possible to do with the dynamic data mask feature they had before. Right. It's a that's a great great feature. I you know I've gone ten rounds with auditors many many times uh, back when I was a DBA over. Well, what do you mean you can see all of the all of the data and how, what do you mean you can't take that away from yourself and and all of that? Uh, and those were some frustrating conversations for everyone. So this is a great feature and and obviously you know where it's the another one like you just mentioned about taking people out of business because I can think of like two or three tools that literally you can buy off the shelf that are just for static data masking, yeah. right? And it's like, well, now it's kind of like built into the service. It's yeah. kind of the same with like backup compression became like included in the product. And it's like so many people that had third-party tools just for backup compression. Right? Yep, yep, absolutely. Kartik, coming back to you, let's talk about cloud and NAT. What is that? <laughs> so again, this was one gap that Google had, which it's addressing. So it, it allows for... Uh, Google VMs that are within a secure zone to communicate outbound to the internet. So basically the IPs or any other firewall rules do not need to be configured at the VM level. The security can all be taken care of at the NAT level, which is also highly available and fully managed. So this is only an outbound connection for a VM to communicate to the internet and to the global services without actually exposing the VM directly. So This was a catch-up that uh, Google has done in order to provide a little bit more layer of security around network address translation. A couple of things to note is that it's, again, only outbound. There is no inbound connection as far as these NATs are concerned. And and you need to bring your own stun and turn servers in order to do the routing in terms of the NAT translations outbound. So this is one update that uh, GCP did, which was a little bit of a a difficult pattern to follow, especially using the cloud firewalls that were available within the networking aspects of GCP. Okay, good, good. And Warner, coming back, let's talk about, I know you were really excited about this one, accelerated uh, data recovery. This is probably gonna be in SQL 2019, but it's now in preview in Azure SQL database. And and it's one of those things where it's nice, people that have, are deploying now in the cloud, they get all these goodies the thrown into them all the time, right? And it's a, it's a good reason why you want to think about the cloud first model because it's a feature that is, is makes a big difference for some really important scenarios and you don't, it doesn't affect functionality of applications in any way. So what this does is, and, and you guys have worked with databases for many years, so this scenario is probably gonna be familiar to you. For example, if somebody, the classic developer that has to do a mass data update or delete and forgets to put uh like do it in batches right so instead of delete if you have to delete 10 million records and instead of deleting you know 10,000 by 10,000 they just write a delete that covers the entire 10 million and press enter and then the thing starts to chug along right and now you're asking the database engine this is a problem that many database engines have by the way it's not just sql server Mm -hmm. and now it has to start you know going through in one transaction, right? In one transaction, it's got to do the full delete. And then what happens is, what happens when somebody comes in and they're like, oh my God, you're blocking everybody. 
and then the, the you know somebody panics and they just go okay i'm just going to kill the session so at that point you're stuck in rollback and you have to wait you know possibly or even longer than what it actually had taken already for the whole thing to roll oh, back yeah i've been there and and finally clear all the blocking from everybody else right so accelerated and and this this same issue does not just happen in in a blocking situation live if you were for example in the middle of this delete and suddenly your database restarts or you do a failover then when the service comes back online it's got to run recovery and it's got to run through the whole thing again before you have full access to your database right so accelerated data recovery they basically looked and took a hard look at how all this is implemented in sql server and you know like the way that they had the code to do the recovery the way that they were using the the version store so to keep like the multi-versioning of records built into sql server nowadays and they came up with a way that basically is near instantaneous rollback whenever this happens right so you have your long delete and you kill it and it's near instantaneous that you get right away access to the data as it looked like before the delete operation started right wow. same thing if you restart the server well obviously in azure sql db will be a failover and on-prem it will be like somebody let's say restarts sql server recovery would be almost instantaneous and you wouldn't need to wait for the thing to roll back for another half hour kind of thing, right? Same if you do a failover, whether you're using failover cluster instance or you're using availability group, same thing, recovery completes almost instantaneously regardless due to this, the accelerated data recovery, right? So Fantastic. very, very interesting. I think that this is, is, is a huge deal because we've lived these situations, especially doing managed services, where this this thing happens and and there's nothing you can do about it and there's nothing really much you can tell the client other than we need to sit here and wait it out because otherwise if we kill that uh, process or we try to hack our way through it we end up with an inconsistent database in the end right yep so it's it's gonna make all those situations a lot easier because it's just basically going to be like i said near instantaneous rollback of any sort of transactions like this a near instantaneous recovery on failover or restart or anything like this. And awesome. you don't have to do anything. That's the nicest part about it. There's no changes, there's nothing. It just simply is gonna work like that from now on. So I like it, I, I, I like it a lot. I like that it's coming to the cloud first as well, because again, people can see the value of this model, where suddenly there's you don't have to do anything. It just, it simply works better and that's it, right? Yeah. Yep, I like it. Kartik, coming back to you for some networking updates. Let's talk about managed certificates for load balancers. Yes, so this is another example of uh, a problem that people were having, and then one of the providers just managing that as a service and providing that outright. There was always a problem in managing SSL certificates when it auto-renews, when it expires, and then there would be like dedicated people or tools in order to manage all of that. But now what GCP has announced is basically they have a managed SSL for load, uh, load balancers. So you can actually use Google managed SSL certificates. So the managed service actually allows for uh, tracking and managing the SSL certificates uh, when it expires, auto renewals, and all of those things that, that you typically require from uh, SSL lifecycle management perspective. And all of that is a managed service from uh, GCP right now. 
So not a big deal in terms of managing uh, SSL certificates on your load balances anymore. You can always bring your own managed SSL certificates. That is not a problem, but this is just yet another service that is available for you to leverage from a fully managed way. Great, great. And Warner, let's talk about the query store and in uh, Azure SQL DW. Yeah, so query store is a feature that's been in SQL Server for I guess a couple of releases now. I think it was 2016 where it was introduced. And for anybody that's not familiar with it, basically what it does is that it captures execution plans from different queries and allows you to compare the performance over time. And if there is a diversion, you know, you suddenly you're getting a plan that's not as good as the one you had before, you can easily roll back to the plan that you had before. Now, Microsoft is taking this query store idea and the fact that you can compare plans to even make it automatic, right? That, you know, if the engine actually detects that a plan is experiencing a regression to worse performance, it will push out the, the older plan that it knows is better, right? So this is in SQL Server, but vanilla SQL Server. Now this same functionality is starting to be rolled out in SQL Data Warehouse, right? So we're gonna have a query store in Data Warehouse as well that you're going to be able to go in and check the plans and see what's taking the most uh, resources and compare if there's a better plan or not. Obviously, the end game, I think, here is to give Data Warehouse the same capability to be self-healing in the terms of you know detecting plan regressions if mm -hmm. you want it to do so, right? So again, we're moving in the, the direction that we've been talking about for you know a few years now, where all these things that can be automated will be automated, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it also appears that there's a new SQL Server VM resource provider on Azure. Yeah, so this is this is interesting because uh, the Azure resource providers is basically the way that Azure Automation, the Azure Resource Manager, operates on data. Right? It's the is the infrastructure as code and declarative deployment mechanisms that are underlying Azure. Right? So when you create a VM, for example, and you want to create a let's say you want to create a template to create a VM with a virtual network and a storage account, you basically write commands against the virtual, the VM resource provider, the storage resource provider, and the network resource provider, right? And then you deploy that as a template, and Azure does its, its work, and poof, you have some infrastructure in the cloud or some services deployed. So the interesting part here is now that they're adding a SQL Server resource provider. So machines that are running SQL Server will be will have their own resource provider, which means Azure itself will be aware of treating machines that have SQL Server inside of them differently than gen general VMs, right? So it opens new automation scenarios. It opens even new licensing scenarios because it used to happen that if you deployed a machine with a certain type of license on it, then you would not be able to switch it easily into another one. For example, if you use one of the pay-as-you-go from the marketplace, then you wouldn't be able to easily switch it to be your own license, even if you purchased it after the fact. Mm -hmm. You'd have to like take backups, redeploy the VM, restore the backups kind of thing, right? So with this new resource provider, for example, they're adding the capability that you can just declaratively uh, run a command and tell Azure, hey, I'm switching this VM from pay-as-you-go to bring my own license kind of thing, right? So that opens that scenario. It opens another scenario where, for example, they can make SQL Server features become available at a higher level declaratively, and people don't have to worry about how they work, 
right? So the first one that they're targeting, they're working on it right now, is to do this for availability groups, right? So you're gonna be able to just say like, hey, I want an availability group that has three nodes and it's using a, this storage account as a witness and you just deploy that declaratively and on the background azure itself is going to create the windows cluster it's going to add the nodes to that cluster and it's going to create the availability group and you know set up sql and configure it in sql and everything right so it, it's going to open up automation scenarios for for sql server itself that were not that they were not possible before but you had to do way more things before to make them possible right oh yeah oh yeah i think that's great i mean i i can remember fiddling with um, windows clustering and it not working and you know get you know messing with that that's a whole that was a whole art at one point so that's fantastic kartik coming back to you to talk about preemptible cloud tpus yeah this is a pretty exciting announcement especially for all the machine learning geeks up there so right now you have uh, TPUs that are allowed as preemptible instances on, on GCP. So you can have multiple pre uh, preemptible instances using TPUs as well. So any type of elastic scaling that you need in terms of using preemptible instances and reduce your cost during seasonal peaks of uh, running your machine learning models and algorithms, you can definitely do that. Another note that I wanted to add in this is that I particularly feel that Google is investing a lot in not only TPUs, because of their TensorFlow program, but also working very closely with NVIDIA in order to enable GPUs as well. So right now you can also use GPUs within containers in Kubernetes, which is also pretty awesome. So essentially you can actually have this fully managed way without looking at VMs for both GPUs and for GPUs. So they have a very consolidated approach. And I see from a pattern standpoint, Google is working very closely with NVIDIA and they have some of the latest NVIDIA P4s and Tesla 100s being released on the GCP cloud platform first, even before some of the other cloud providers, which GCP really had to do a lot of catch up on because they were a little laggards in this field, but now they are pretty much out there. Uh, so this is a very important announcement, especially for uh, very elastic workloads, people who really needed that level of elasticity in terms of running that machine learning workloads, whether it be in GPUs or in TPUs. So we are seeing a lot of adoption in this particular space, especially moving a lot of high performance computing onto these uh, newer models and scaling out as much as you need and then scaling back down uh, pretty quickly on GCP. Right, and, and you know, Kartik, that last announcement as well as Warner's, I think it was his last one, are exactly why folks, if, if you're frustrated because you, get, you ask people, which cloud should I be on? And someone keeps telling you it depends, that is exact. Those last two updates are exactly why it depends. If you're an ML heavy shop and and that's what you do or you're leaning on, that's exactly why you know access to the NVIDIA uh, hardware first may be the reason that you're on Google first. If you are you know uh, certain uh, certain aspects of depending what you're doing with databases, that may be why you need to be on Azure. So I just I wanted to underline that for for any of the probably more business oriented listeners who who just want to know what is the best cloud for me 
this is why it takes an expert to take a look at uh, what you're working on. And I'll also highlight that none of the bleeding public cloud vendors are going to tell you that you need a multi-cloud strategy. It's not in their best interest. But the reality is you probably need a multi-cloud strategy. And and this is another reason why you can take advantage of the best of, of all clouds. So just wanted to add that in. Um, so and, and one other thing I'll hit pause on before we continue with the rest of the updates is I know a lot of the podcast software out there allows you to skip the intro. And I, I you know, I'm guilty. I, I skipped the intro on many podcasts. So I do want to mention there was a very important announcement at the beginning of the podcast. And I'll just share it again here in case you skipped it and missed it. The Cloudscape podcast will move to the Datascape podcast channel after the next episode. I'll probably also publish the last few episodes there as well on Datascape. Cloudscape will merge with Datascape and after December, no more new Cloudscape episodes will be published on the Cloudscape channel. I'll keep the back catalog available for a while, but then everything will just be in Datascape land. So thank you so much for listening to us. It just made a lot of sense to us uh, to consolidate the two podcasts. We will still do the, the monthly updates. They'll just be on the Datascape channel. We're also retooling the Datascape. We're, we're going to get a new intro and outro and, and, and work on some other ideas to hopefully keep it exciting and interesting for you folks. So thanks for that uh, quick commercial break, and we'll come back to Warner who's going to talk to us about the new private endpoint support on uh, HD Insight and Azure. Yeah, so there's a couple of HD Insight uh, refreshes or updates in this uh, in this episode. First one is that there's now a private endpoint for HD Insight, and this is all, again, related to security and compliance and tightening it up. Microsoft, when they started, some of the core initial services all have this issue that I'm going to talk about, and it's that they all went out first release with public internet-facing endpoints, right? So we're talking about Azure SQL DB, for example, uh, storage accounts, HD Insight. When they were released, they all had just one public-facing endpoint, and you could add rules, you know, firewall ACLs, basically, to say who could connect to that public-facing endpoint. However, what the problem is, is that right now with the regulatory environment and security environment that we live in, for many people, this is not good enough, right? They don't want their endpoint to be sitting on the internet. Even if you can prove that, you know, it's only being whitelisted for specific IPs, many compliance checklists will just be, they'll just say that it's non-compliant, right? Because it's sitting out there for the endpoint on the internet to be hammered away for somebody just doing connection attempts all day, even though I guess, like I said, it's not that they're gonna be able to connect, but regardless, it's just, it's an issue, right? Anything that just sits open on the internet nowadays, it's an issue, right? It's flagged as an issue. So Azure SQL DB has somewhat solved this with something called a service endpoint, same as the storage accounts, and now uh, HD Insight is solving this by creating an internal endpoint so that you can have virtual network traffic, specific virtual network traffic, hit the HD Insight cluster through that internal endpoint, right? And then the public endpoint, you actually still have to keep it, but you can shut it down in terms of not allowing any sort of connection through the public endpoint other than than what is absolutely necessary, which is basically the Microsoft control plane still has to use the public endpoint to make sure that your cluster is up and running. Right. So it's, it's, it's a feature that is for tightening up security, tightening up compliance and making sure that, like I said, if you had an issue before where you couldn't get 
sign off because this thing had to always be accessed through public endpoint and now you have an extra tool there to limit traffic only to a specific virtual network. Cool. And what about IO cache? And yeah, the other feature for HD Insight is now there is an IO cache feature that was released on HD Insight Spark. So this is leveraging the VM families of of Azure that have local SSDs, right? To be able to use these local SSDs for caching data frames for Spark. I believe they also cache results if you enable that as well. So instead of you know, always having to go out into the actual remote storage of the cluster, it can use those local SSDs as intermediate cache. And, and I mean, the obviously the response time between local SSDs attached to the VMs compared to remote network storage going out to blob storage or data lake storage or whatnot is, is, is pretty big, right? So according to the benchmarks that I saw, if you have some jobs that already have the warm data in the cache, they could get, you know, like a 9x performance boost, right? Nice. So it, means it makes sense, right? Yep. And yeah. let's wrap Azure's changes. And speaking of things that uh, become free, why don't you talk about MongoDB? Yeah, so the update here is that MongoDB Atlas now is going to offer a free tier in Azure. For you, for those listeners that are not familiar with what MongoDB Atlas is, MongoDB Atlas is basically MongoDB's managed Mongo in the cloud. And, and the way that Mongo has gone out to the cloud for this, I think is very smart actually, is that they've created a managed offering inside other people's clouds that already are bigger. So their their idea is not, oh, I'm gonna compete with Azure or Google or Amazon as, you know, a cloud provider, which is, you know, to me it's a, you know, kind of like a death sentence to try to do that. Instead, I'm going to take my solution and host it as a service on those clouds, right? So this is what MongoDB Atlas is. And the big diff, the big release here, or the big thing for this month is that now it has a free tier. I believe it's about 500 megs of data that you can store there for free. And just if you want to try the service, if you want to use that for dev tests, if you have small amounts of data, then it's great. I mean, it's free. Who doesn't like free, right? Yeah. I think it's a good strategy as well for Mongo in general, like I said, to have this, the way that they're building Atlas and obviously having a free tier makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah, that's that's great. That's uh, nice, nice uh, updates from Microsoft this month. And we'll go ahead and wrap up GCP. Kartik, you had a couple of IoT updates you felt were really important. Go ahead. Yes. Uh, one of the reasons I wanted to include IoT updates is because we have never really talked about GCP IoT in this uh, podcast before. And I did want to talk a little bit about GCP's capabilities. It has it was definitely a laggard in terms of the IoT space. But uh, with a couple of new announcements in the last few months, it has really started to catch up. To set a little bit of context, uh, one of the things that GCP announced was Edge, IoT Edge, which is essentially... Um, software and a chip, which is actually which actually can be deployed on IoT devices. So they actually have a chip, basically an edge GPU, which you can deploy on your IoT device, and it can do machine learning and TensorFlow activities on the device itself, even before it reaches your uh, network. So these are, these are some of the biggest capabilities that they were trying to do in terms of pushing out a lot of the compute actions to the edge, and then being able to do a lot of the derivative actions on the network and the compute engines on the cloud. Uh, to this effect, they have actually done a couple of releases, especially in terms of managing these IoT devices a little bit better. 
they have uh, device commands that you can actually publish from uh, your central cloud infrastructure out to your devices. This is uh, through cloud IoT core on GCP. This is again in a beta. So this all the messages and commands that are available on your IoT devices can now be sent over MQTT uh, from your central place all, all the way out to the IoT edge device. And then the second part of it is again in beta, which is basically being able to ship back all the device logs back into the central network where you can identify access, turn on, turn off, and all the other regular device logging events. And you can have all of that consolidated and visualized in Stackdriver. So basically now the IoT ecosystem from GCP is a little bit more consolidated and well-baked. There are a few aspects of it which are still in beta, but we are hoping that within the next couple of months, everything will be general availability. And I definitely feel that at this point of time now, GCP has a very strong, uh, very competing IoT story uh, that it was lagging behind AWS and Azure from. So uh, they are really pushing a lot of work down to the edge. They are really making this big bet in terms of making edge computing on IoT more of a priority rather than enabling IoT services. So I think they are really coming up to speed on that. That's good. I mean, in, in my opinion, IoT is one of the premier use cases, I think, for, for a public cloud. So that's wonderful to see the competition. That means they'll push the other vendors to, you know, try harder uh, as well. So I love the competition. That's that's great news from Google. And the cool thing is that they, one of the key things that which is very googly is the TPUs. They are actually leveraging their TPU technology and pushing it all the way to the edge, which will be difficult for some of the other competitors to come up with. But there will obviously be other patterns or other things that they will come up with. But because the whole, of the whole TensorFlow ecosystem that Google really has a command on, it's really trying to leverage that in the IoT space as well, which is a really brilliant strategy in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, that's great. So thank you so much, guys, for joining us. Uh, we'll close with our monthly Cloud Age productivity tip. Another one from me. And guys, I really want to send you some swag. So please do send in your uh, Cloud Age productivity tips. If I read your tip, I will send you swag. So this month's productivity tip, it's really two, and they're very googly. One of the things that uh, I love is um, muting conversations. So when you get that, uh, you know, that first group email and you know the rest of the conversation is going to have nothing to do with you, if you use, if your work uses Gmail and in your personal as well, uh, use Gmail, you can mute the conversation, which means you're not going to get all the replies, which for me and my position allows me to really cut back on, on email. And, and I'm sure, Kartik, I never do it to you. And the other, the other feature that I just love, uh, so really just two this month is a recent update to Gmail allows you to display your calendar to the right, on the right pane of your email, which my, my job in, uh, requires tons and tons of meetings, so it's really great for me to easily combine That's the two. Good. I didn't even know you could do that. I'm going to go check it out now. <laughs> See? So uh, Warner obviously not using it yet, probably a fan soon. Kartik, do you use it, either of these things? Yeah, I just started using it uh, about a week ago. I was Somebody showed me that, hey, you, did you know that you could do this? I was like, oh, wow, that's going to be really handy. Yep, life-changing for me because the, my primary two tabs of my browser are my calendar and my that's email. True. So getting yeah. them into one uh, saves me a tab and also probably helps me be more on time. I'll show you after the mm -hmm. podcast, Warner. No, no, I just did it. It's good. It's easy. <laughs> yeah, it's excellent. That's all the time we had for today, folks. Those are the updates as we saw them. Next up will be the reInvent special with Greg Baker. Thanks and have a great day in the Cloudscape. Navigating the Cloudscape.